Well, hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the New Ground Life and Leadership Podcast, here to help you thrive as a follower of Jesus wherever you are and whatever you're going through. I hope this finds you well wherever you are and whatever you're doing or going through. Uh, Now, before I hand over to today's conversation and introduce today's guest to you, I wanted to just let you know about a conference that I'm involved with that's taking place in early July. If you're someone who's interested in communicating the gospel in the modern age, or if you're passionate about preaching and about learning to preach well, or if you enjoy dipping into the past to learn lessons for the present, then I would love to invite you to join us down on the sunny south coast of England at King's Church Eastbourne for a conference that we're calling the Dead Preachers Society. Hosted by John Woods, who's due to appear on the podcast soon and who runs the School of Preachers Trust, with special guests Ben Virgo, who's been on the podcast before, and David Hilborn, the chair of the Evangelical Alliance Theological Advisory Group. Together, we're going to be learning lessons from some of the great thinkers of Christian past, men like St. Augustine, to learn how we can more effectively then share the gospel of Jesus with people in the 21st century. It's taking place on the 5th and 6th of July and costs just £70 per person, which includes lunch on both days and dinner on the Tuesday evening. We would love to see you there. You're very, very welcome. Do please join us. For more information or to sign up, please go to www.deadpreachers.com. www.deadpreachers.com. That web link will be in the description to today's episode. Okay. Now, uh, I have the privilege today to bring you a conversation that I had with Jonathan Latoc. Jonathan has been in ministry since 1989 for over 30 years then. Um, just to date you, Jonathan, sorry. Uh, he lives in Guernsey, where in 2012 he became Deputy Chief Minister and then in 2014 became the Chief Minister of Guernsey until 2016. Currently, Jonathan is serving as the External Affairs Minister for Guernsey, as well as also serving on behalf of New Ground Churches, bringing apostolic input into our church and plants in France and he's of course primarily a father and a husband to Judith. Uh, Jonathan great to have you with us thanks for being on the show. It's great to be here with you guys. Um, now Jonathan let's start with a, a question we like to ask our guests given the strange times that we're living through. Uh, I want you to help us just by thinking through what's one of the, the things that God has spoken to you about or lessons that you've learned recently? Yeah it's a really good question trying to you know narrow it down to to one thing but um right in in the middle of the pandemic just about a year ago i had a heart attack which was not something that i imagined to be having because i was actually probably the fittest that i'd felt for some time over a number of years um i put on a lot of weight particularly when i was chief minister because uh, i used to spend most of my time at dinners or breakfasts or lunches or something like that and talking um, so I put on a lot of weight. I'd lost it over the previous year or so, but ended up right in the middle of the pandemic uh, having a heart attack. It wasn't a serious one, but to begin with, they weren't too sure what was going on. So they flew me from Guernsey to Southampton. All the sort of major stuff that can't be done on Ireland uh, gets, you know, you get flown. So I was on a, a medical emergency evacuation flight. Um, it's at those sort of times that you suddenly realise, ah, this is pretty serious and because it was times of covid uh, no one could come with me so i had to say goodbye to my wife and family not too certain whether i would be returning i've got three we got three daughters two are married um we've got three grandsons uh, our youngest daughter um lives in a flat alongside our house and so it was to her that i had a little bit of a weepy moment we talked together and uh had a little little cry and prayed together and I said look Emily if I don't come back promise me you look after mum and uh and she did and and fortunately when I came back she said phew I haven't got to look after mum or at least not yet anyway um so <laughs> and it's those sorts of times that um you know I had to think the night before I was going to fly off um am I ready am I ready to leave to be with Jesus uh I think in perspective I've learned or I'm learning to be far more grateful for every moment there's there's a wonderful thing in um some of the uh early Christian writers uh used to it is a phrase that that occurs very regularly and particularly in, in in actually the early medieval times that talks about the sanctity of the present moment 
and and it really is to do with enjoying now and it links into all those things that Jesus said about the now making the decision now not worrying about tomorrow etc etc um, letting him deal with our past all of those sorts of things the sanctity of the present moment and it's that that um, I'm learning to enjoy far far more whatever that present moment might mean that's a massive experience to have lived through talk to us a little bit about the sanctity of the present moment as it relates to the way you conduct yourself as a politician yeah i I mean i think one of the things that's most important today in the world particularly in the west we live in is a sense of authenticity and the trouble is never mind all the benefits of social media and zoom that we're doing this which is great to have one of the um, issues with our culture is that we are so um, image based superficially based and, and that applies to both the sorts of sort of cult of personality that you see in politics and sadly in the church as well and you've got actually got to fight to be real And part of being real is being willing to make mistakes and own up to them. Um, That might sound very topical, but I think one example for me was when I, well, to begin with, when I was elected into politics, which is over 20 years ago, I was a backbencher for a while. But when I first uh, had my uh, government position here in Guernsey, which was uh, home minister, I was minister of home affairs. um, Some of my staff said, should we look after your Twitter account for you? And I, I thought about it for a moment, but I said, no, no, I, I want to be responsible for my social media accounts because I want people to know it's me. Um, partly because I, I knew some others, some colleagues of mine uh, who had let their staff take that over. And it, one, it got very dull, but also with me, if you follow me on Twitter, uh, sometimes you're going to get a comment about, I don't know, Brexit, fisheries, that sort of thing. And sometimes you're going to get a quote from the Bible. Uh, so, you know, that in in my mind is is me and it's a real me. And if you don't like it, well, so be it. But um, at least what you see is what you get. And I think that's very important. So coming back to your question about sanctity of the present moment, I think it's that fight both internally to oneself but also to this world around to say, this is me, I'm work in progress, but God's on my case. And what you see here is the, is the real me. Mm, without having to put any on, on any pretense to be something else than you're not, which I imagine all of us feel, but particularly as a politician whose life is under public scrutiny all the time. And then you touched on something that I find, this is, this is why I'm really excited to be able to talk to you really, is, is living as a Christian politician and being both of those things um, deliberately. Um, and I think before we kind of get onto what, it, what does that feel like? How does that look like? What does that look like for you? There does seem to be a critique of churches, maybe churches like ours that has been overly concerned with personal piety at the expense of not really caring about social transformation. Um, talk to me about that dynamic of how do we, should, should we as a church, where should our emphasis be? Is there even, is it a false dichotomy? Um, how have you, just give me some of your thought on the personal and political and pietistic life. Yeah, uh, that, there's a lot there. Um, I mean, I do think that we can be uh, focused on the, just get people a ticket to heaven and uh you know the the rest is 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 doomed to judgment by god uh, i grew up with a, a little bit of that um type of christianity um and i suppose by the time i was a teenager i could see that whilst it did have enough i think it had uh, my parents generation it probably did have a positive effect post-war Billy Graham type of uh, environment where, you know, evangelism was that confrontational, uh, quickly come to Jesus and let's not worry about too many other things. Um, However, we are in a different world. And I think um, as I grew up, went through university in the 80s, I realised that um, there, there needed to be an application of the whole of scripture and the whole of the gospel, because the gospel is more than just a ticket to heaven. And the way in which we should do that, I I, I grew up in a Methodist setting, so I saw a sort of extreme of the social gospel 
uh, which I didn't like, but at the same time, I was, was conscious of uh, going in the other direction and ignoring our duty as stewards to demonstrate the gospel of Jesus through our words, our deeds, and our attempts to make uh, the, particularly the church effective as the, com the communicator of the kingdom of God now. So a little, a little touch of heaven, I quite often say, we, we need to be that uh, little demonstration that there is an alternative, an original way that God wanted us to live. It's not perfect, um, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't try to do it. So politically, it, in, in some ways for me, it is an outworking of that. And that's how I entered politics. It was because I saw the lack of that. It was diminishing. Here in Guernsey, we probably culturally are sort of 10, 20 years behind the UK in many ways. And we, we had a Christian influence for much longer post-war. But by the time I, uh, in, into the late 80s, 90s, it was diminishing rapidly and there was very little Christian voice in the public square. And so, well, I, again, one of the quotes that uh, I, I found that um, you, you have been quoted as saying um, about your kind of position, actually, in a conversation about pro-life and abortion, campaigning against that, you said that neutrality is a myth. We all have presuppositions, be they faith-based or culture-based, upbringing, philosophy or worldview. And it's so rare that I ever hear a politician say something so honest and truthful and actually be willing to take a stand that may be unpopular but nevertheless is showing an underlying deep level of conviction about something now I guess that kind of just comment opens up a whole world of what I'd love to hear your reflections on how do you manage to straddle being both fully Christian and fully politically engaged yeah it, it, it's a um it, it's a regular battle um and I think you know I, I have I'm still in the process of learning and my experience would make me want to encourage others to say, never expect, despite the fact we live in an instant society where we want things to be convenient and press a button and out it comes, never expect this sort of thing to happen quickly. And so in terms of the sorts of uh, cultural change we need one to be to win the right to be heard because sadly because the church and because Christians have not always behaved very well have have spoken the truth but not in love because of that we've got to win the right to be heard in certain circumstances and having said that of course in some instances it's not automatic we're not guaranteed that right so it's not always going to be the case but there is a fight I think to uh, demonstrate to people, and this is what I love when when certain politicians, particularly uh, whether here in Guernsey or elsewhere, have taken a view of me based on my background and you know my links to the church and the evangelical charismatic church, particularly, and they perhaps been a bit negative to begin with, and then over a period of time, maybe years. I have a conversation and they say to me, you know, one of the things that strikes me about you is that you're not what I thought you were. And then we can begin to have that conversation that goes deeper. But before that, I think I'm not really being heard and they're resistant, they're hardened to the gospel truth, probably because one famous incident that happened to me uh, was, was in Br Brussels on one occasion. Somebody had read my bio, it was early days, and in, in those days in my bio, I'd insisted that it said, Jonathan is an ordained Christian past evangelical pastor. I thought it was better they should know that up front, you know, what I was saying before, in a sense, what you see is what you get. And uh, over the course of a, uh, a lunchtime conversation with someone who turned out to be uh, a, a very anti-Christian person, was an M uh, MEP, uh, he said to me, so let me, I read your bio, so you're, you're a Christian? I said, yes. He said, you're an evangelical Christian? So I said, yes. He said, you're an evangelical Christian pastor? He said, that means you must really believe that stuff. And uh, I said, yeah, yeah, I do. He said, so let me get this straight. You're, you're down on women, you hate gays, and you approve of the abuse of children. And the, he wasn't joking. That was his viewpoint based on 
uh, the culture around him, the media he'd read, and perhaps some Christians that he, he knew. Now, over the course of time, I've changed my bio, for example. So it now says Jonathan is a follower of Jesus. And whilst that's not a major change, in fact, in some ways, it's an improvement. Um, what it does do is I often get now conversations say, what exactly does that mean? It says you're a follower of Jesus. Now, that's learning to speak a different language for me. And because I like language as well, I think that's something that the church and all of us in the West today as followers of Jesus need to learn to do desperately because we live in our little bubble. So when I was at first elected to politics, I'd been in a church environment, leading a church and in fact being involved with church leaders, you know, leading church leaders. I had hardly been outside of uh, that bubble for some time. And it was quite a big shock, shock to me to enter into a political environment where uh, everybody seemed to be against me uh, in, in all sorts of ways. And it really did feel like that to begin with. So I do think there's there's a real need for us to learn to speak, to communicate in a different way, in different language. Yeah, there seems to, we seem to be in an age where our, our role as Christians increasingly, and particularly as pastors and leaders, is the role of being translators between the church and the world and the world and the church with kind of those mediating yeah. types who can speak the language and understand what the world is saying and uh, to be able to communicate it to our people but at the same time represent well what would be some of your advice then on how to be an effective translator between those two cultures those kingdoms I should say well I think we need to be observers first I think it's one of the things that uh, Leslie Newbegin uh, who I've become a great fan of um, in uh, the Gospel and the Pluralist Society, for example, talks about the need for us to understand the culture around us, learn the way in which it sees the world, and then use that to communicate afresh the Gospel of Jesus in ways they understand. And so for, for me today, I think uh, I have tried deliberately to find out uh, the, the types of things that really speak to uh, people today. And, and there's quite a lot. I mean, in movies and films, for example, it's amazing how many things really do speak of what you can use as an illustration of the gospel of Jesus, or even the, you can use the reverse and say, that is opposite to uh, the gospel that I believe in or the, the, the good news that comes in Jesus Christ. And all of those sorts of ways of keeping your eyes open to well, the way the, the world sees things. And looking also today, at, I mean, I think particularly at the moment, we're in a, a sort of cultural moment where perhaps because of COVID, because of uh, political un un unrest generally in, in the West, and disappointment, huge disappointment with leadership in general. There is a crisis of leadership. Um, and we could come on to that as to why I think that is. But nevertheless, because of that, you can appeal to that and say, look, what are you looking for in leadership? Are you looking for authenticity, for, for genuineness, for um, someone who doesn't say, I've got an answer to everything, but says, well, you know, I will try and help find an answer or let, let's explore this together. Um, that appeals to uh, a big question mark in, in people's minds. And very often, it's not, they don't think, at least to begin with, that they know what they really want, but they know what they don't want. And the, the gospel can appeal to that as well. So it's keeping your eyes open for these things and using them in the moment. Mm. Well, and you mentioned the crisis of leadership there. I'd love, to, I'd love to tease out exactly what you mean by that and your diagnosis and cure, because it seems like, you know, we can appreciate from the headlines the crisis of leadership in government, but then the church is by no means immune to that either. I think we've seen both a, a crisis in leadership in the terms of um, the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast, for example, that was very popular, that kind of exposed... Uh, a form of Christian leadership that was found wanting. But then equally, you could say there's a crisis of leadership in terms of people not really knowing or giving, being able to give leaders permission to lead anymore in such a protest culture now that seems to want to topple and overthrow every type of leadership that might, it might set itself up. So I'd just love to hear your comments on the, the landscape as you see it and what you, you think some of the way forward is. Yeah, I, well, I think... Um in brief really we have lived over the last 20 30 years increasingly in a world where leadership has been transitioning from um 
uh, a position it was that the main role of leadership really probably for over a millennia probably probably more than that was authority it was you had a position and that position granted you the authority and you respected the position it really didn't matter who filled that position to a large degree that was leadership now um with all the cult of personality and this uh, culture that is very much based on image we have a situation where leadership is more on influence now neither one nor the other in my view are good or bad it's not it's not that uh, we could discuss that i don't think either methodology of itself uh, is perfect they all have they have both have their faults but the fact is when you move much more into an area where young people can be saying well i want to be like him or her and and you say why did you do that because they're famous and that's it full stop there's no focus on uh, virtue there's no focus and no even in, even in a sense of a judgment of those sorts of things then we really really are in quite a, a difficult environment because um, when eventually uh, that influencer that you want to follow in some way lets you down or majorly offends you or offends others that you care for then your whole purpose your whole focus is broken and I think we're increasingly seeing that and sadly as you, you you touched on before that that's affected the church not surprisingly but it's affected the church in the west as well and we've got quite a lot of work to do I think to redeem the concept of leadership back to Jesus style leadership where what you see is what you get and where there is both truth and love so we don't want to swing back into a sort of authoritarian leadership where you just do as I say, never mind who I am or how I live my life. That's not good because sometimes the legalism in Christianity has brought out that type of attitude towards the culture. We need to find the Jesus way, which is to be full of truth, but also full of love. Maybe God didn't send a perfect argument. Maybe he sent a perfect person. Now, that's mind blowing if you see it that way. But I think that's the world we live in today. And so this balance of truth and love, or truth and grace, you could say, is like the beginning of John's gospel. I think that needs to be the, uh, a real aim and focus of uh, our churches today to try and encapsulate that and to live that out in reality. Wow, that's really helpful. Is there any, any more you can say on how we do that? Because I think the... Yeah, the thing that often is a little bit depressing is how infected the church seems to be by, I say infected, but I don't, I don't mean that in the, like the world's disease, but we seem to be so often just enamoured with the ways of the world, you know, the, the successism of the world. We think, oh, I want that and I'm going to live for that. How, how do you safeguard your own heart from being too influenced by worldly values such that, you know, your, your leadership style leans towards whatever the dominant, you know, narrative of the culture is? Oh, I think the answer to that is with great difficulty. We really desperately need the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit's help. And we need to face the fact that in certain circumstances, I think we've, we've thrown out some very good things over centuries, perhaps, particularly Protestants. And, and look, I'm not, I'm going to say something that could be really misunderstood outside of context. So to be a little bit controversial, I'm not a fan of the monastic orders and systems i'm not a fan of the reasons they started because to a certain degree they were a response to a culture that was becoming you know more immoral and so the idea was separate yourself and go and live somewhere else and then uh if god wants people to join you he will call them out of the cities into into your communities now i'm, I'm not in favor of that on the other hand the one um thing we struggle with particularly today the church is communicating in the area of sexuality and it's it's got to such a degree that some some very um capable preachers and teachers just avoid the subject altogether in the evangelical church and the protestant church we don't really have that calling to celibacy and to a, a valuable life 
that is given to God in that way. Now, I haven't got the answer to it, and I'm not saying we should have a sort of monastic order, but I think in some, in some areas we, we have, and I've been guilty of this myself, so we have over-glorified marriage to such a degree that almost, if, if you're not talking about marriage, then surely you're just talking about a short period of your life where you will be celibate and then eventually get married because you know that's that's far better for you and all those sorts of things i don't think that is biblical i don't think it's the balance that we see in the bible and i'm using this as an example of where we need to reevaluate what we offer uh, to the world that that actually is an answer to the to the problems the world is seeing but is searching in completely the wrong directions for solutions and for purpose and meaning and gratification and all those sorts of things and sex i think is a very good example of it um, and instead what we tend to do as a church is is to is to criticize the clearly unbiblical ways the world is going about it but not offer a far better and uh, simple and biblical solution to it so we need some real thoughts and creativity of how we can reimagine the offer of the gospel in a real way what life should be like for the christian whether then in this instance sexuality is not the only instance but i use it because it's such a big issue whether you're married or not and that's that's something that i feel very strongly about and i try very hard um, to ensure that I'm not saying I've got the answers to all these things, but clearly there is an alternative and it's there, I think, and we sometimes have avoided it. How, I mean, if we don't want to go too far down the, um, this particular rabbit hole necessarily, but as I, with, with the likes of people like Nick Clegg, who really got into trouble over not really thinking through how to answer this question in the public sphere, because... It's, uh, the questions about sexuality in our society are often they, it, it's the question that's being asked isn't the question on the surface it's really a question of human dignity and worth that's being presented in you know are you going to deny an individual value by your own strict or conservative moral preferences or whatever but so I'm just kind of curious to know how you as a politician have tried to navigate that conversation in particular um do, would you speak on it? Have you answered questions on it? What would you say? Or do you tend to avoid it and say, look, I'm just part of a different city to this. I'm part of the city of God. We have a different value system. How, how would you kind of help people think that through? I, I don't think you, you can do it very easily, but it goes back to this thing that I was talking about right at the start. If people know that you're coming from an environment where you're being totally honest about where you are, but at the same time, not condemning the world that you live in that is clearly no longer Christian or even having the semblance of Christianity. Although, of course, in the UK, at least, or at least in, 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 the, in England, you've got a, a national church that is established. There's, there's church, historic church buildings around. It's not like the world of the first century where there were no other Christians around. There were religious people around, but there was no one saying that they were a follower of Jesus as such and doing other things in the same way. So we we are we are re-evangelizing a landscape that is littered with Christian artifacts that have been thrown away um, and but still speak to some degree um, in, in, in various ways. So that's the background. And I'm saying that if you can say, and this is what I sought to do. So for example, when I was chief minister, moves came not surprisingly for Guernsey to bring in um, what was termed equal marriage. And I met with quite a number of LBGTQ groups and gay uh, rights activists and the like that we have here in the Channel Islands and sought to find out what they wanted first, what they were really asking for, because some of them, to be frank, didn't really know. And there was disagreement um, amongst some of them. But it came to the conclusion that really what would be best, because I had on the other, on the other side, I had a number of Christians of all shapes and sizes and hues uh, saying, you are going to defend the law at the moment on that. And I looked at the law and our law in Guernsey was not a lot different than that in England or Wales. And, you know, I came to the conclusion, this isn't Christian marriage. At best, it's marriage between a man and a woman 
in a building, a contract between a man and woman in done in a certain environment by a certain individual, which can be, uh, you know, annulled or can be dissolved very, very easily, which is not the marriage that we read about in the New Testament, certainly. So one, it can be entered into far too easily without little thought. And secondly, it can be uh, reneged upon very easily without little thought. That isn't Christian marriage. So that was my first conclusion. Christian marriage is a lot more than that. And you wouldn't want to impose it upon people who didn't have Jesus at the centre of their lives. So what is the state trying to do here by registering marriage? And primarily, all the state is really interested in is next of kin and inheritance rights. Really, the state isn't and shouldn't be interested in your sexual behaviour any particular sort. That is a religious and moral issue for the community and society today. When uh, adultery is used as a means of, of divorce, often, if particularly if there's kids around, the marriage, the, the, the whole environment just becomes a battlefield and no one comes out of it, except the lawyers perhaps, uh, with any sense of victory. And it, it's, it's very, very messy. So my suggestion, which was quite radical and certainly put the cat amongst the pigeons, was that we should no longer have marriage on the statute. That all, all we should do, and I came up, because we have a lot of our laws written in French here in, in, in Guernsey, I came up with a, a title called Union Civile, which was effectively really like um, a civil partnership, but uh, anybody could take part in it. There wasn't any promise to... Uh, you know, to, to, to sexually be involved with one another, but basically that, that the couple would be registered, um, and it can only be a couple, uh, registered by um, the, the state for those purposes. Now, the funny thing was the, the gay community were very happy with that because not all of them wanted marriage as such because they saw it as an antiquated and religious sort of institution. And on the other side, the liberal Christians were happy with that as well because they didn't like the idea of a state church particularly and all of that mix up and inv involvement of that. It was the evangelicals that really struggled with the idea because they we've got used as evangelicals to sort of being in the ascendancy for the last couple of hundred years. Certainly uh, here in Guernsey, that's been the case. And people have forgotten why uh, marriage is on the statute books anyway. Um, it's more there by default than by design. That, that's my opinion. All, all of this is my opinion. But anyway, what was a good thing about that was that suddenly I had trust from, from unexpected people that we were going to get to a place that would be acceptable because we wanted to live in peace, even if we disagreed. So in the process, I said, look, my view of marriage is not even what the uh, current uh, state view of marriage is. And I gave the example, it just happened that Judith and I got, although we were living in London uh, after our, our wedding, we got married in Guernsey. And at that time, back in the 1980s, it has changed. You could only get married in church premises. And we chose to get married in a concert hall. So we had to have a registry office marriage the day before. And the, you know, the funny thing about that was it was uh, when we were asked about it, it said, well, the simplest possible because we didn't want to pay very much for it. Um, and we just had my father and Judith's mum, I think, as, as witnesses. And we went in in our jeans and T-shirts and we did the sort of registry office marriage on the Friday. And uh, the registrar handed me the certificate sort of three minutes afterwards and said, are you off on honeymoon now? I said, no, we're getting married tomorrow. And he looked at me strangely and said, oh, we're just doing this for the sake of the law. You know, our real wedding is tomorrow. And, and that's the one that counts. My, and to this day, I have to keep on reminding myself uh, when I have to when I sign forms and things that it, it wasn't the 16th. It was the 15th of August that we, we got married on. But you see, that helped me to say, actually, no, what what God is really looking for is something different. So. We, I built that trust. Now, in the end, the, the whole idea was thrown out as inevitably, inevitably happens. But the relationships remain in that they know I'm being totally honest. I'm saying this isn't going to happen in our church. And this is what we believe. We believe that what the Bible says about marriage and divorce uh, between a man and a woman, etc., etc. But we realize we live in a different world and we're not going to impose that upon you. We want to talk to you about it. But we recognise you've got equal rights. And in this world, it seems to me that this would be the best solution. And, and that wants some trust.
but I think it was it was sort of inspiration. It didn't it didn't sort of happen by me sitting down and working it out. I think I was I was really inspired by uh, what God was saying. So that the, there's some positives that come even when you lose a debate. And and I just want to say for any budding politicians listening or watching, um, I, I, I try and say this as often as I can. Um, I want to encourage Christians, followers of Jesus, to get involved in politics, be that local politics, be that national politics or whatever, uh, or even as non-elected people, but engage in the political process. And I think one of the key things is do not go into politics hoping and praying and expecting to win arguments as a follower of Jesus. Otherwise, you will be as dis disappointed as I was in my first term when I was a backbencher. It just didn't happen. But if you aim to win hearts and minds and people and relationships, then actually you win more than arguments. And there will be some arguments that you will win in the end because the trust will come if you're genuine and if they see that. Wow. that I, t I can't tell you how just encouraging and refreshing to hear you talk like that, actually. Um, I've never heard anyone say things like that before. As someone who's thinking deeply about what it means to be a Christian and a politician and trying to act as fairly and as open-handedly as that, it's just remarkable. And actually, you know, I think what many Christians experienced during the pandemic was um, particularly Christian pastors. We experienced a separating of state marriage from holy matrimony, from religious marriage. When as pastors, we were, for, we were faced with members of our congregation saying, we want to get married. And we're not like the world. We're not just going to move in and, and start having sex outside of ma marriage. So what do we do? And many pastors, myself included, married people before God. And then they delayed their legal marriage for six months. And so we were forced to put a, a kind of real rift between that. And in so doing, exposed that we do have a different way of thinking about what marriage is. Um, and regardless of whether you know people would agree with where you arrived or, or not, what I find so deeply refreshing is just that thoughtfulness of engagement with human beings on the other side of the debate to hear where they're coming from. But what is also interesting and what I'd kind of just maybe this is this is tumultuous terrain to tiptoe into so I do so carefully is that as much as that is true there in as a politician and as a Christian I guess you're you're still trying to act as an some kind of agent of justice God's justice and so you do feel perhaps a responsibility to try to make laws that protect vulnerable people um, and I think the family unit is quite um is a sacred good that God has given us. It's a common grace for the health of society. And I, I mention that because, again, in in the article that you, I quoted from earlier that said, you know, where you quoted saying neutrality is a myth, it was actually an article about your stance on um, abortion, that you're um, publicly pro-life, which I imagine is hugely unpopular and has probably brought you a fair amount of criticism but yet that seems to be an arena in which you're willing to take flack in a way that it seems when it comes to the marriage discussion you were happy to kind of think it through a bit more carefully was it to do with this area of justice and protecting the vulnerable or how do you decide as a Christian perhaps is the question which which are the kind of essentials you've got to fight for and speak up on even when we're in a world that you know is post-christian has a different view of the sanctity of life say um, and a woman's right to choose and yet as a christian you're imposing your your particular um objective view that it's murder and so it shouldn't occur though what are your comments on some of that yeah well very briefly because it, it is a big one abortion um and I haven't always argued it this way. I, I was I was quite black and white and uncaring um, in the run up to getting elected in 2000. Um, abortion law in Guernsey changed in 1997. And I had been part of, in fact, lead, led a group of 20 evangelical leaders here in Guernsey to lobby against the change of law that made abortion legal. Um, so I was well, well known. I couldn't hide that fact. Um, and that, that's not a problem. That was a great gift in a sense for me because um, I, I could only, in terms of other politicians that totally disagreed with me, I could only go up in their estimation after that. Uh, so, you know, that, that was, I mean, some I haven't managed to do that with, but there were others that, that, I, that, that I did. And, uh, but, but to begin with, 
um, I, I, I didn't act very well. You know, it was a black and white and this is this is what the Bible says sort of sort of thing. But of course, the what we share in terms of uh, life uh, values and that applies to uh, abortion as well as to euthanasia, for example, which is another aspect I've been very outspoken on. Um, it's not unique to Christians. It's not a, a truth that we can say we hold it alone. Um, I have many friends who are atheists who hold the same views about abortion. I have some feminist friends that hold the same views, but, but for different motivations, but the same ultimate views, and they would they would lobby uh, in, in a similar way. And I think that can help as well. Similarly, I've got some Christian friends, even evangelicals, who, and I find this hard to believe, but nevertheless, who don't hold the same views on uh, abortion and on euthanasia. So from my point of view, it's not, it's, uh, and I often start, start a conversation with someone who might approach me on these things by saying, I think you'll find it's a little bit more complicated than that. And it is more complicated. So uh, the other thing is my own personal story. So I was adopted at 11 days old. And one of the things that I try and say to people when talking about abortion uh, would be the would be the same for anyone in my position, irrespective of whether they were a follower of Jesus or not. I am grateful that abortion wasn't legal in 1964 when I was born here in Guernsey, because that gave me a far greater chance to life. Um, and it probably would be the case, bearing in my mind in mind that my mother was underage at the time my birth mother was underage when she gave birth to me it almost definitely would be the case that I wouldn't be wouldn't be speaking here to you today if that was the, if that were the case now um that has at least opened the door to conversations with certain people and to be fair it's also closed the door to others because there, there was somebody who very kindly on Facebook uh, wrote after I'd said that on one occasion I wish abortion had been legal uh, back in 1964 so you, you know you've got to be fairly tough-skinned when you do these sorts of things but but sometimes to follow Jesus means to try and find a way to arrest the attention of people who really don't want to think about these things very deeply and I, I can understand that because sometimes I much rather not have to talk about these things but abortion is one thing that I feel very strongly about because it is a life and death sort of situation and sexuality can change during life. I think we've all experienced that and your views on sexuality can change. So, but, but if you don't get the right to live in the first place, then there's something very, very seriously wrong. And we should at the very least, I think, as followers of Jesus and Bible-believing Christians, aim to, to minimize the huge numbers of, of lives that have been aborted, that have been ended in the womb, wherever possible, at the same time as having huge sympathy and mercy towards those women who are victims in those circumstances and are faced with that awful decision. And many of them are. So let's not be like those Christians who, who think they're easy answers to this. There aren't. There aren't. This is hard. And it means the church also has to, along with others, stand up and say, we're willing to be foster parents or, or whatever or adopt or whatever it might be and I'm glad to see that in the British Isles at least today there is an increase in uh, in opportunities and help home for good for example to uh, train people to support people who want to adopt and to foster um, but that is something that that I would feel very strongly about and as you say I've been outspoken on it and I, I can't imagine I'm going to change now. And I, I you know, I just really uh, applaud and admire your willingness to not be. Um, I don't know. I think a lot about um, the 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 concept of shibboleth tests. You know, from the Book of Judges, um, where they the there was the, the dialect changed over how you pronounce this word, and the Israelites were told if they pronounce it this way or that way, then they're either you know for us or against us. And I sometimes feel that challenge as a pastor that I need to pass it loads of different shibboleth tests with my members of my congregation that I'm trying to work out my own mind on certain issues and what the real, you know, and yet, as you said there, the evangelical church um, often is the one that is 
so deeply entrenched in a particularly narrow position on something that to sound anything like a postmodern who's questioning things is to actually be written off as not passing a shibboleth test or, or not being orthodox. Um, how have you, um, you know, you mentioned there about your reflections on marriage, that it was the evangelical church that criticised you the most. Why do you think that is among evangelicals in particular? Well, evangelicals, I think uh, it, it's both a, from a good motive and from a bad motive. When you have had a real experience of meeting the living Lord Jesus through his Holy Spirit and you're, you're living life for that. I mean, you really do want to share that with others. If your life has turned around, you can't help but do that. That is the nature of it. In fact, if, it, if, it's, if it's not there, then there's something wrong or maybe you really haven't met with Jesus. You know, it has to be like that. And so you can be annoying to the to the nth degree as a new convert can't you and to a certain degree if you extend that to the community it's not surprising that at certain times um that's what's happened and there's been a lot of good that's done that's in the, the nature of revival is that it spills out into society and that's why ultimately i'm still a believer in prayer for a prayer for revival because take the welsh revival you know over 100 years ago now i mean courts had to close down there was no there was there was virtually no reason for anybody to sin they didn't want to do that anymore that was the effect that it had in society now not all of them were genuinely converted but they were affected by what was happening through the holy spirit so let's pray for that but that's partly why the second thing is we can and it's this is more of a negative thing we can end up being because i found the truth I have a better perspective on the world than the rest of you. You know, that that's and that's nasty. In fact, it's almost the opposite to the gospel. We should be most humble people uh, that, uh, you know, on, on Earth. Some of the problems that I have with extremists and fanatics, you know, is that they're not fanatical enough because Jesus wasn't like that. You know, Jesus. Um, when his, it's, it's the followers that tend to be the problem, isn't it? So when, when his disciples came to Jesus on one occasion and said, look, there's a guy over there who's casting out demons and in your name and things like, shall we stop him? And, and Jesus said, no, you know, if he's, if he's not, if he's, if he's not against us, then uh, he's with us, you know, now he did, he did say the opposite on another occasion. So you could have put the two together, but nevertheless, that was, must've been quite shocking for his disciples because I can imagine saying, Hey, We've got it. We can be the Jesus police and go and sort that out, you know, and, and any wise leader of an influential movement, I think, should see that and really teach into it. Um, John Wesley was um, I think there's an incident that happened with John Wesley, who is a great I'm, I'm a great fan of John Wesley. But on one occasion, a group of people come up to him um, and, you know, he, he would fall out with. Uh, with um, Whitfield, with George Whitfield on a regular basis, because Wesley was an Arminian and Whitfield was a Calvinist. And uh, although they worked together in, in the revival that was happening, but sometimes they would fall out and their followers would particularly uh, sort of align with one or the other. And on one occasion, a group of followers came to John Wesley and said, it was a bit of a trick question, Mr. Wesley, I'm sure they were going to you know, print it in or publish it on, tw on Twitter the next day. Uh, Mr. Wesley, do you think that you will see Mr. Whitfield in heaven? And and John answered, no, he's a far more holy man than I, and he will be closer to the throne. And it was a very, very wise put down in a, in a lighter way. But we certainly need to learn to put ourselves down as evangelicals. We should not be quick to judge the fact that we have met with Jesus and that we we should realise just how far we've been, we've come, how we've been saved, what we've been saved from, not only what we're saved to, and realise that that process of sanctification is ongoing. And so before we go and judge another person, we should be quick to befriend them, seek their good, uh, their well-being. Mm, wow, that's really helpful. And actually, as you're speaking, maybe to, to change tack and just kind of be a bit of, practical wisdom for leaders maybe as we draw things to a close it strikes me that one of the one of the challenges we've got is the difference between 
having followers that know what we believe and can repeat what we believe, you know, can they can repeat what the New Testament says because we've taught them from the pulpit. And then having people who actually have caught your heart for things, you know, they've understood the character of Christ as full of grace and truth, not just concerned with repeating what Christ taught. And what advice would you give on how do you disciple people in such a way that they catch your heart, not just your words? Yeah, um, that's work in progress as well. I, for me, it can't be done on a mass uh, scale. Um, one of the things that Ray Lowe taught me years ago, Ray, who's, I don't think you could ever say he's retired, but you know, used to be part of Terry's team and worked with Dave for a number of years, which used to visit us in Guernsey. But one of the things that he taught me was to disciple a small group of people, to bring a group of generally it's it's guys with same sex together for a for a season for a period of time to pray together to study the word together in a systematic way and to deal with issues in one another's lives so to, in other words to spend some time together and so for a number of years i've done that um well actually yeah i've done that probably <laughs> for, for for well over 25 years now and normally i invite uh five or six guys sometimes a bit more sometimes it's a fewer than that but um we meet together and one week we would pray together and that's all i would do i would just teach them to pray and to begin with say I'm going to pray like I would normally pray when I'm by myself and you're going to hear all sorts of things. And for the first few weeks that we do this, you might not want to pray very much, but you, you're welcome just to listen. And eventually, bit by bit, we then I then share how I pray and why I'm praying about the way I treated my wife yesterday that no one else will, will hear about. And how much I feel hatred for this particular person uh, at the moment, normally a political thing, and I need God to work in my heart. And they will hear all those things and experience it. Um, and uh, the other, then the, the next week, we will sit down and we'll talk about pornography. And it's rare, particularly with guys with, 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 with that sort of environment, that after a few months, it's rare that uh, that not you know not one or two have said I've got a problem with pornography. And the thing is, because it's hidden and it comes out, that it's not just to do with pornography. It's to do with the fact that I can be myself. I can be genuine here. Now you need a safe place to do that, and you need it to be a context. And it's not a context of counselling or any of those things. It's a context of discipleship, following Jesus together on the path. Some of us might be a couple of paces further ahead. Uh, some, some might be struggling to keep up, but we, we try and walk together on this path um, for a year or two. And for me, that has been the best way of forming other disciples of Jesus. And it continues to be so. And it's not a very prominent, very visible way. Um, but those guys who've been with me, one of the greatest joys I have is that even if they're no longer in the church here, but they've moved off somewhere, occasionally they will email me or I'll bump into them somewhere and they'll say, that year I spent, that that really changed my life. More than up my preaching, I'm not a great preacher anyway, but um, you know, it, it's not, it's spending time together. Now that takes time, it's effort. We would normally breakfast together afterwards. So there's all sorts of changes of schedules that's necessary in early morning six o'clock till half past seven eight or something like that it's not easy uh, but it can be done and for me it's been some of the most beneficial in terms of ministry inputting into other people's lives all different types they're not all leaders i've deliberately chosen a mix sometimes they're new christians amongst them um and and some that have been christians for a long time Mm, wow really helpful well Jonathan just one more question from me I mean there's so much I could keep talking to you about we're gonna to have to get you back and come and talk to us some more because we haven't even touched on church parting in France and the work that God's doing there but you know you strike me as a man with a real 
um, legacy, pastoral legacy, political legacy, um, somebody, you know, just even talking to you, I'm not trying to flatter you, but you come across with a real sense of just spiritual gravitas. You, you know who God is, you know who you are. You're, you're able to be tough when you needed to be tough in a political world with thick skin, but also tender with people. And I'd just love to know what, what would be one, maybe two of the kind of disciplines in your life have you cultivated or things that rhythms that you put in place that you would say have been most instrumental in just trying to sh- shape you to ensure you a faithfulness over the long haul in your ministry yeah, that's a very good question and i think because um you know I married judith we married quite young um we were living in london involved in student ministry in what is now everyday church um around that the southwest london for quite some time and that you know as with no kids there was plenty of time i used to lead worship and get crossed with with those uh couples who had kids turning up late for 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 ministry times and 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 uh, and, and practices and things like that and over a period of time you realize there are seasons in life so the first thing i would say is in terms of rhythms recognize the season that you're in because there's not in my experience now it might be different to others but in my experience there's not one rhythm that fits every season i'm a musician I think I often describe myself as a fat organist trying to get to heaven. Really, that's who I am. Um, <laughs> I started off in that way. I love rhythms, but they're different rhythms for different reasons and different times. You don't try and play a waltz in four four time. You know, it, it, it doesn't work that way. So uh, in life as well. So when our kids were small, um, getting up early to pray was almost impossible because I had to get up early and do my turn with the baby or whatever it might be and so feeling guilty about that which I did for a period of time but I was very helped by others saying no don't do that if you in this season the rhythm that you need to find maybe is saying once a month on the Thursday night that will be my night with God and I will pray that night and I will read the scriptures and I will really throw myself into God you know that that you find the rhythm that is appropriate the thing is you need to find the rhythm uh don't just give up find a rhythm there will be a rhythm that fits the season that you're in so that that's the first thing i would say but it needs to include in that rhythm so there's some ingredients in that rhythm it needs to include include prayer because prayer is our development of our life with jesus and prayer is a two-way street so you need to be honest with god and you need to find a place where you will listen to god and um you know very often for me um that is walking it's getting out i love reading books and i was going to come on to bible reading and reading that's great but to be honest the greatest hindrance to prayer for me is bible reading or book reading right because if i you know honestly it's true i would try and come down here and pray in my study here and within five minutes i'd opened a commentary somewhere because my mind had wandered onto something i prayed about and i was no longer praying i was doing spiritual things but I was no longer, so I tend to go out or even, you know, cycle. I mean, I'm doing more than that to, to, to lose weight. And in, in, in doing that for a rhythm to get out where I'm not um, being stimulated by other distractions, spending time with Jesus, I can then hear his voice. And that's really important. There's a sort of point where I get to, yes, yes, that's the rhythm that I need at this moment. It might change again. So just be aware of the season. And look for it but it needs to include both of those so the other thing is we, we need to read the, the word of god we need to read commentaries we need to read spiritual things that will spur us on that will speak to us in a prophetic way and encourage us and stimulate us and uh, and again people some of the people are are good readers are fast readers and some because of technology today prefer to have it read to them well why not i mean that's great that we we've got technology that can do that i've got an app on my phone that can read anything um, that's not necessarily a good thing, but um, but I do use it to to read all sorts of things to me when I'm on the go because uh, I, I try and redeem the time. But those two ingredients need to be part of our rhythm. And then it's a matter of saying, which season am I in? Am I busy? I don't want to be so super spiritual as I was for a while. If Judith, my wife, was here, would say we went to Stony Bible Week once when our second daughter, I think, was six weeks old. And I insisted that as a pastor, I had to go to the prayer meeting every morning. So Judith was left with with a toddler and a six week old screaming child. We were sharing a tent with another family. Well, I blissfully went out to an hour's prayer meeting. I don't think the Lord is very pleased about that. 
Oh, again, just so refreshing. I wish I wish I had this conversation when my kids were little. I spent years of guilt thinking, oh, I used to have a good quiet time, but now I can't. And actually, your comment about Bible reading in, in your prayer life is so, again, refreshing. The amount of times I've sat there thinking, I've had my quiet time. I didn't pray. I just read a book I really like. Um, and <laughs> Listen, other opinions are available. It's, this is just no, I'm taking the one I like. This is the one that's helpful. Thank you. <laughs> um Oh, Jonathan, such a such a privilege to be able to speak with you. Thank you so much for being with us, Jonathan Latoc. It's been a pleasure. Really enjoyed it.